Good morning, everybody. I'd like to invite you all to stand up. Um, let's bow down our heads and join me in prayer. God who hurts with humanity, we lift up our voices and pour out our hurts, our minds, and our souls to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I claim this space, a holy place of prayer, and I place it on all the people who are here and have come here to pray under the protection of God's mighty angels, so that all the powers of evil are hereby bound, expelled, and barred from returning. I call upon God's Holy Spirit to be present and active here so that God's healing gifts may be received and God's love may be powerfully experienced during this time of worship. Lord, I pray that you hold each and every person here in this sanctuary today in your kind and loving hands and that you may hear their prayers, hear their joys, hear their suffering, hear their happiness, hear their pain and hold them in your light. Help us come to you for guidance, strength, provision, and protection. Forgive us for getting ahead of your plan and help us know that help us know to stop when we listen so that we can listen to your direction. Lord, thank you for the people and experiences that you have divinely placed in each one of our lives that speak holy truth, love, and words of wisdom. Give us a heart of discernment to know when you are using someone or an experience to speak instruction into our hearts and our circumstances and give us the strength and courage to follow you through with the advice even when it may be hard fill us with peace in knowing that even if we may take the wrong turn your purpose will prevail fill us with hope and remind us that you have a beautiful plan for each and every one of us Remind us that we are enough within you and that even though we may face tough choices and hard decisions, that we are reminded of your belovedness, your power, your grace, your abundant love and your mercy. I just want to pray that you may bring a deep sense of comfort and relief to those who are stressed, those who are pained, those who are grieving, those who are hurt and need healing, those who are lost. Almighty God, I just ask that you may also bring us deep sense of clarity in the minds and hearts and souls of those who are weary in this sanctuary today. May we be free from all anxiety, doubt, pain and distress, and from all the fear and uncertainty within our lives. Send your healing light and power and energy into, into every fiber of our being. May your love and your grace flow through our lives, restoring wholeness in our relationships, in our bodies, with you and with those that we love and with those that love us. We come before you humbly at your feet at Calvary and ask that you hear our prayers and that you may see us through the coming days as we continue into the second half of the semester. Almighty God, hear our prayers, exemplify our joys, and take away our pain. All the praise and joy and glory is to you, God. Amen. Now we ask you to um, sing the chorus with us. 
What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. We light this light in the name of the God who creates life, Jesus who loves life, and the Holy Spirit who is the fire of life. Good morning. It's good to see you here at chapel. Today, we will be hearing from Joe Lichty, who is a professor here at Goshen. He is also the head of the Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies Department, where he teaches a variety of fascinating classes on subjects like reconciliation and the relationship between religion, conflict, and peace. He is one of the many great professors we're blessed to have at Goshen. He is deeply empathetic, and he makes himself available to hear about the lives and concerns of students who need a listening ear. After graduating from Goshen College, Joe and his wife Linda moved to Northern Ireland in 1980, working with the Mennonite Board of Missions, the precursor to what is now called Mennonite Missions Network. There, while he and Linda raised three children, Joe worked with Irish organizations on various aspects of reconciliation, completed a PhD in Irish history, and co-led a project called Moving Beyond Sectarianism with Sister Cecilia Clegg. In 2003, Joe returned to Goshen College as a professor. Any time that someone shares their faith journey, especially with a large group of people, they're being very vulnerable. It means opening up about some of the most important experiences in your life and the ways that you see God at work in them. So we're very grateful to Joe for being willing to share a part of his story today. Please join me in passing the peace to those around you. To all those who come to him, Jesus teaches. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. 
Then, in their joy, they go and sell all that they have to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, they went and sold all that they had and bought it. In the same vein as Jesus, the Apostle Paul, arguably the most influential leader of the early church, is thought to have written this letter to the church at Ephesus while he was in prison. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and creator of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The gifts God gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Please stand and join me in turning to number 506 in your blue hymnal, 506.
You may be seated. My conviction is that Christians don't get called in some standard way, but in many ways, in every which way. In fact, all of you have already received a very powerful call. Follow me, says Jesus. Okay, nice to know more, sure, but that is one powerful general call. Follow me, says Jesus. <clears throat> Today, I'm going to say something about God's call in my life to suggest just a few of the many, many things that God's call can mean. And borrowing the phrase that Jews use in their Seder meal liturgy to express their gratitude to God, I wish to say, Dayenu. It would have been enough. That is, just as each blessing of Israel would have been enough if God had done no more, so just one call from God would be enough even though additional experiences of call may be helpful and gratefully received. Scene one is in a car on the way to my grandparents' farm in central Illinois. I must be about eight years old. I'm sitting in the middle of the back seat, but draped across the front seat, pestering my parents. Maybe I thought I wasn't getting enough attention and needed to raise my game by asking something like, what's the most important thing in life? Because my father's answer went something like this. One important thing is who you marry, but the most important thing is what you decide about Jesus. That answer just lodged itself in me, and the experience became a life-framing reference point. The most important thing is what you decide about Jesus. Like most Mennonite children, I was powerfully conditioned to hear such words, but conditioning is not destiny, and of all the exchanges between my parents and me, why'd I remember this one? Why didn't I think, old people are weird and promptly forget about it? Why did their answer seem compelling? I find that I must interpret my persistent, nagging recollection of this exchange, my acceptance of its truth, my allowing it to become a frame of meaning as an expression of God's call. The reason I choose to tell this story, the principle I draw from it is simply this, be attentive to the special significance of the question that seems distinctively or even uniquely compelling, to the answer that sticks and sticks in your mind. Consider the possibility that God is calling, trying to get your attention. Second incident has to have taken place in junior high, but my memory of it is utterly decontextualized. If some event or context triggered this incident, seems not to have mattered because this was a moment of inner existential awareness. My parents' faith cannot be my own. I am not a Christian. I don't think I believe in God. In any case, I have to come to grips with God in my own right. In other words, what a Mennonite uh, theology of faith and baptism had always taught me, what I had grown up with, suddenly became plain and existential truth for me. I have to interpret that new awareness of where I stood as a gift from God, and it set me on a path of searching quite unlike anything I had been on before. The principle here, 
Be alert to the gift that is being shown what you are not, whether that suggests a path you need to pursue, maybe a path you need to abandon. In light of that junior high uh, anti-conversion experience of unfaith, I spent my high school years doubting. Almost always in conversation with Linda, then my girlfriend, now my wife, I doubted Christianity, other faiths I came across, 1960s-style radicalism. I doubted fundamentalism, hippieism, secular rationalism. Eventually, I got adept enough at this doubt thing to realize I'd better be doubting my own doubts. So this was the theme of my high school years. The search was sometimes exhilarating, uh, especially the making out part. Remember, this was with Linda. Um, but it became increasingly draining as doubting came to seem way easier than actually embracing something. Doubt too easily snuffed out any flashes of something else. In our senior year of high school, Linda and I joined our churches baptismal preparation class. Our church was this church. Not because we wanted to get baptized, but because it provided a structure for pursuing the questions that we were not answering on our own. I was cynical enough to have low expectations of the class, and lo, they were met. Not, I wish, to stress through any fault of the class. I went to class one Sunday to explain that I was not baptism material and to announce my departure. Before I had a chance to give my little speech, however, the guest for the day made a statement to the effect that to be a Christian, you need to be able to say, Jesus is Lord. Hmm. I said nothing, but I thought, what do you mean you need to be able to say Jesus is Lord? I can say the words, Jesus is Lord, just said them, so what? But, you know, I really do want to say Jesus is Lord. <clears throat> I want to say Jesus is Lord and mean it. Maybe I actually do mean it. Okay, this was very, very far from a moment of blinding light on the Damascus Road. But looking back, I know that at that moment, my own road did turn a little bit. Almost imperceptibly at first, but it turned. And I would eventually, um, within a few weeks, the turn in the road was working on me and I was hurtling down it, wildly excited about Jesus, baptism, and all that kind of thing, those bits of Christian faith I sort of understood. I tell this story mostly because it's the first time I want to say, Dayenu. It would have been enough. Even when I was more or less an atheist, Jesus had never ceased to be a teacher of sorts, and now he was my Lord, I was his disciple. What more really did I need? In one sense, I needed so much more, but in, in another, this would have been enough. I had been given a path and a Lord to follow on it, Dayenu. One of the things, though, that my newly minted faith required radically and urgently, although this was not exactly obvious to me at the time, was what the Bible calls metanoia, a new mind, a transformed way of thinking. I've said that I had accepted Jesus as Lord, and I had, um, but to be honest, the whole Savior thing wasn't part of my personal faith equation, and in fact, my enthusiastic 18-year-old's faith managed to turn the supposed disciple-Lord relationship into something more like a partnership, you see. You and me, Jesus, we're going to save the world, yay. That summer, within a few months of my baptism, I had a dream. 
I am walking through a snowy wood of sparse, straggly trees. I come to a small clearing occupied by what I know to be a concentration camp. Just a few ramshackle, unpainted wooden buildings on stilts with barbed wire strung around them. The light is dim and gray. It's like a perpetual twilight. I had been there and done this before, so I know that my job is to sneak in and rescue the people imprisoned there. I go in and I bring a person out on my back. We're trudging away towards safety when I hear voices and then I hear dogs closing on us. We've been discovered. They are catching up. I know we're going to be caught. I keep going, but in exhaustion, I let that person slide off my back and I just keep stumbling forward. They want the prisoner, not me. So soon I'm trudging, alone and numb with despair, across one snowy hillock and then another under a featureless gray sky. I've got no sense of where I'm going. I am alone, consumed by the depth of my failure. But then I crest one more hillock, and here I find not another one, but I find a scene of grandeur on an impossibly vast scale. Looking out and away at a roiling black and gray sky and a turbulent gray sea crashing against a rocky coast, I know that those waves and boulders are on the scale of mountains, and the vista extends not as far as I can see, but far, far beyond. I am immediately shocked into awe, delight, and gratitude that first displace my despair, and then they settle into awareness that I am very small. Not necessarily insignificant, but definitely very, very small. And that things are going on in the world on a scale that I can hardly imagine and will never fully know. This awareness of being very small had absolutely no sense of loss in it. It brought the peace of knowing how things are and where you fit. The Benedictine sister Joan Chittister defines humility as an appropriate sense of self in a use of universe of wonders. And I was being nudged, maybe pushed, toward an appropriate sense of self in a universe of wonders. The sense of self suggested by the dream also pretty much settled, and there are no words in any of this, but it pretty much settled the Lord and disciple matter. Jesus is Lord, I am his disciple. And it left me with a deep in my bones knowledge that I would be needing not just a Lord, but a savior. The work is God's. If I get to participate in some way, that is great, but the work is God's. I tell this story mostly because it indicates, although this is only apparent to me in hindsight, how aspects of our ongoing conversion may be essential to our vocational calling in ways we can't anticipate. In my case, my eventual decades of work on reconciliation in Northern Ireland could only have survived to the extent that I knew in a very deep way that the work was God's. Any other perspective would have undercut the work. It certainly would have left me frustrated and quite likely led me to give up. So jump now, a year or so into college, the Bible study group here that has become the center of my life wants to study mission. 
I do not want to study mission. At that time, my casual contempt for mission and missionaries took the form of regarding missionaries as tired-looking people who turn up in your church every few years with dodgy dress sense and a second-rate slideshow of the natives. And surely the reason that they had to go to the back of beyond to do their little thing was because they couldn't cut it at home. Okay. Now, I have not the slightest recollection of what happened in that study, but I entered it, contemptuous of mission, and a few weeks came out wanting to be a missionary. No, I didn't want to be a missionary. I needed to be a missionary, and I never entertained another question about this sense of call. Dieno, it would have been enough. Which is my personal experience of the principle that has become one of the first I would offer to you. Be closely attentive to your intuition, the things that excite you about what gives you energy. I make the simple assumption that the Holy Spirit is at work in every Christian. And it would be foolish to overlook the possibility that the special energy you feel about some things rather than others is the Spirit working in you. When you have options, when you think of things that could be vocation, is there one that you cannot leave, that keeps coming back to you, that engages you in a way that others don't? The three-year process of learning where we would engage in mission work uh, involved more work in that uh, college Bible study group. It involved some of us coalescing into a group of five that wanted to serve together and formed an intentional community. It involved the counsel of a later church small group with adults who had long experience of being missionaries. And it involved endless discussions and a few fights um, with admi mission administrators as a sense emerged that Ireland was our best option. It was a fairly stringent decision-making process that tested a sense of call and gave it a specific shape that eventually seemed right. What it didn't involve was any direct sense of God's direct leading. That sense would have been welcome, but Dayenu, what we had was enough. So you had to know you weren't going to escape a Mennonite's tale without some invocation of the community, community principle, and now I've fulfilled that requirement. Um, so a personal sense of call is definitely involved, but for many of us that call is going, going, going to be both received and tested. And, and that testing is going to be in the context of Christian community. Find a community. Make a community. It's vital in discerning call. Yeah, so it was the community that, uh, in some of those fights with mission administrators, uh, persuaded me not to send the nasty letter I had written. It's a great thing I didn't have email and could have just hit send. So <clears throat> now let's go to August 1982, two and the one half very, very difficult years into our Ireland experience. In this time, we have accomplished little beyond survival, but it has become time to contemplate something more. I have been encouraged to consider two main work options. One was being a lawyer as the basis for service in our very poor Dublin neighborhood. The other was doing a PhD in Irish history as a way into some kind of piecework in Northern Ireland. Uh, so I have applied for both, uh, uh, everyone, um, including my most important mentors, however, Alan and Eleanor Kreider and my wife Linda, think law would be best. And I mostly think law would be best too. And when I occasionally meander in the direction of history, which had been my college major here, Linda sets me back on the law path. 
sometime in August, about a month before the programs would start, and I still haven't made any final decision, um, Linda goes to Bolton Abbey for a weekend spiritual retreat, and I am at home with the three children. On Friday night, I am lying on the, uh, my back in the bed with the lights already out. I have drifted into that state between waking and sleeping when a voice says to me, Joe, you should really go into history. I understand this to be the voice of God, so in that instant, the issue is settled. I turn on the light, and I spend the night reading the only Irish history book I own, Sean O'Foylan's King of the Beggars, A Life of Daniel O'Connell. Okay, so that's God settled, but what about Linda? Okay. Uh, now, on Sunday, I get the children to bed a little earlier than usual. I get the house cleaned a little better than I might have otherwise, and I try to figure out how I'm going to explain this. When Linda gets home, I tell her I have something I need to say. She says, okay, but let me go first. I had a lot of time to think, she says, and I really think you ought to go into history. <clears throat> so principles, I want to say, die new. Um, the vivid sense of call I received in these words from God and in Linda's words, was not merely enough, it was glorious abundance, it was excess. But then I've had to consider that maybe it wasn't excess, maybe it was necessary. The, uh, the reconciliation ministry that PhD in Irish history eventually led me into was pretty strange and demanding at times, and maybe I needed a clear and immediate sense of God's call in order to persevere. As it was, that initial mighty push from God sent me on a trajectory that for 20 years involved doors opening one after another and, on, and that opened on to ever expanding and more significant opportunities for ministry. And on the handful of occasions when what seemed to be the right door did not open, almost immediately the obviously correct alternative appeared. In the midst of all the uncertainties of the work I did, it was a very great blessing to have this direct sense that God had set me on this path. So, and for many years, I had the daily sense that if I could make up whatever I wanted to do in this world, I was already doing it. Dayenu and more. I suppose the principle here is that God will give you what you need to fulfill your calling. Another principle, though, is the faith principle. So why did I believe that voice was God's? Why not my own wish fulfillment? Why not a delusion? Why not the chemi subtle chemical workings of too much salt and vinegar on that night's fish and chips? I mean, it could have been all kinds of things. I didn't have to believe the voice was God's. And I didn't know the voice was God's in any provable sense, and I think that's why we call it faith, not certainty. But I was confident beyond asking any serious questions, and when on occasion over the years I worked up the energy to ask questions, I always thought, what kind of a fool would I have to be to doubt this merely because I could doubt it? How petulant and stupid to turn down the gift received in faith, and uh, I can do petulant and stupid, but not on this one. In the fall of 1988, my PhD complete, Linda and I were asking whether we should move from Dublin to Belfast in Northern Ireland where the violent conflict continued with no end in sight. 
Linda was more than open to it, and I really, really wanted to move. I had made many friends in Belfast. I had acquired um, mentors. I had acquired heroes. I, and I could see the kinds of work I wanted to pursue. However, the Dublin Mennonite community lacked any sense of what I wanted to do and didn't feel stable enough to give up founding members. Their counsel was, don't go, and my our employer, Mennonite Board of Missions, backed that up. I raged against it, mostly internally. Um, it was the hardest decision I ever had to accept, and while I lived by it, and I hope I lived by it in a mostly good spirit, um, I never did accept that it was right. But my work in Northern Ireland went on anyway, pretty much in the way I hoped it would. Belfast and Dublin being about two and a half hours apart, I just spent a whole lot more time on the bus, in the train, in the car than if I had lived in Belfast. So principles, well, one is a community sometimes thwarts one's personal sense of call. There isn't a right way of dealing with this, but it's best to be aware that it can happen. Second principle, though, is call is usually flexible enough to accommodate roadblocks, detours, etc. Just as there are many callings, there can be many ways to fulfill your call. 2001, Linda realized that she needed to move to the U.S., and she was absolutely right. I didn't share the need, but I needed to respect it, her need, and I needed to come to terms with it. We straggled back, Linda came back in March 2002, then I came in August 2003 when I started working at Goshen College. It has left me in a curious situation that 14 years on, I only kind of partly understand. That sense of direct call and blessing that I had lived out of since a voice told me, Joe, you should really go into history, was gone, and so it remains. I live now out of the general sense that teaching at Goshen College constitutes a valid Christian ministry and vocation. I must conceive of my work as mission, so I do. Sometimes I miss that old direct sense of blessing, but dieno, this is enough. Principles, I've gone in my life full circle to my start, which is the general call of Jesus to his disciples and this is enough. Christians do not get called in some standard way, but in many ways and every which way. Dayenu. Thank you, Joe, for those powerful and inspiring words. Um, in response, let's sing number 76 in the blue hymnal, Praise, I Will Praise You, Lord. And let's stand, please.
And now may the Lord Jesus bless your soul and strengthen your faith. Let this time of worship and storytelling grow within you and bear fruit which will remain for eternal life. Amen. Go in peace.